Hey, this is Lee. I really hope you've been enjoying the Business of Marketing podcast. It's from marketers and for marketers, and my intention is to bring you value, experiences, and insights that you can use. Also, if your company would like to have their own podcast, I would love to help. The team at Content Monster specializes in B2B podcasts. So if we can help, contact me at contentmonster.com. That's contentmonster, M-O-N-S-T-A.com. Enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Business of Marketing Podcast where we have conversations with some of the most influential and thought-provoking minds in marketing, sales, and business. And here's your host, A. Lee Judge. Welcome again to the Business of Marketing. I'm A. Lee Judge. If you follow me for long, you know that I tend to talk about two things, content marketing and sales marketing alignment. The best part for me is that I'm a bit of a marketing technology geek, which allows me to tie all those things together. From creative to sales to marketing, no matter which business team you're on, your end goal is to figure out who to sell to, how to engage with them, how to get them to buy, and if you're smart, how to get them to buy again. And to do that today, you need to have careful consideration of your sales and marketing technology. And today's guest is an entrepreneur behind several of the leading technologies in marketing. My guest today is a marketing entrepreneur and a thought leader. He's currently the chief marketing and product officer at Demandbase, the leading account-based marketing platform. Previously, he was a CEO and founder of Engageo, which was acquired by Demandbase, and he was a co-founder at Marketo, a leader in marketing automation, which was acquired by Adobe. He's a frequent speaker at conferences including Dreamforce, Marketing Props B2B, and the Marketing Nation Summit. He's written The Complete and Clear Guide to Account-Based Marketing and The Definitive Guide to Marketing Automation. Therefore, it is my absolute honor to welcome to the podcast, John Miller. Hi, John. Howdy. Thanks for having me and thanks for the very kind introduction. Definitely. It's my pleasure to have you take your time out of your day to to have a conversation with me. Um, So, you know, John, I've studied, I've shortlisted, I've purchased, and I've used so many of the platforms that you've been a part of creating that I almost don't even know where to start. So can you give us a quick journey through some of the companies that you've helped develop? Sure. I mean, I, so I like to sort of go all the way back. I actually studied physics uh, for my undergraduate uh, and thought I'd go get a PhD in physics and, become, and go to academia. And I, um, you know, it was like, I don't, you know, I, I, def- I ended up deferring that PhD program for a year and just to try out the business world. At least I, I wanted to at least give it a shot. And I worked in uh, management consulting, uh, and I liked it. And the firm where I worked ended up buying uh, an old mainframe-based marketing technology solution. And we spun that out as a company called Exchange. And if you're a real history of marketing technology, you might have heard of them. They were probably one of the leading marketing tech solutions of sort of the mid-90s. So fast forward a couple of years, I went, you know, I went to get my MBA. And when I was graduating, it was sort of the middle of the internet bubble, uh, 1999, and everybody was going into tech. And, you know, and I didn't have any tech experience at all. But I ended up getting a job at a company called Epiphany. Uh, and part of the reason I got that job is because they were building a product that was going to compete against Exchange. And the fact that I had even a loose connection there 
<laughs> kind of was, you know, enough to lock me into that role. Great timing uh, too. And so that's what kind of really was my first job in marketing technology. I wasn't a founder, but um, I learned a lot. Uh, Epiphany went on to become probably the leading marketing tech of the internet bubble. And then kind of crashed down the other side. Uh, and we ended up selling Epiphany in um, uh, 2005 to a company called SSA Global, which is now part of Infor. So when that happened, um, I decided to leave and try to figure out what I wanted to do next. Uh, and I had never really even thought about being an entrepreneur. You know, I mean, I didn't come from that kind of family or anything. And, you know, honestly, like I had a pregnant wife and a mortgage and, you know, I wasn't thinking, oh, let's go start a company. <laughs> but I started talking with Phil Fernandez, who had been my boss's boss back at Epiphany. He was the president of Epiphany. And we both sort of kind of had a shared vision, actually, of an opportunity for a marketing technology, something that was really powerful like Epiphany had been but that would be a lot easier to buy and easier to own and easier to use. And that we could really leverage software as a service to make that happen. And, you know, through those conversations, we ultimately decided to start a company together, you know, which we ended up calling Marketo. And, you know, it, it, as it wasn't the time in my life, I thought I'd be starting a company, but the fact I was able to do it with Phil, I thought, you know, really helped de-risk some of the situation for me. And, you know, obviously, if you've been in marketing technology for a while, you probably have heard of Marketo. Um, <laughs> it's an understatement for me. <laughs> that, that worked out well. And, you know, we had an IPO. Um, so as the company got really big, though, it, it stopped feeling like my baby, you know, and it started feeling like a job. Um, Is that an entrepreneur pain? Well, I didn't realize that. But, you know, once, you, <laughs> once I did it once, I realized, hell, this entrepreneur thing is pretty good. Yeah. I wanted it again. Mm -hmm. And so after nine years at Marketo, I, I decided to leave to start an, uh, my own MarTech business and this time try it out being the CEO myself. Um, and, and I decided to enter into the account-based marketing space, uh, partly because it was up and I could tell it was up and coming as a category, and partly because I'd been trying to do similar marketing things myself at Marketo and I'd realized the challenges that I'd had and that therefore there was opportunity for new, new technology solutions. Uh, so that's what ultimately led me to start Engageo in 2015. And that was a great experience. I mean, we built Engageo for five years, I think to help define and, and redefine the ABM category, you know, and then in 2020, partly during, I mean, during COVID, uh, I, I was I started talking with the demand-based team, and we really just saw a shared vision of the two platform, their, the demand-based platform plus the Engageo platform coming together perfectly to create the ultimate platform, if you will. Uh, if there's any kind of 1980s cartoon geeks out there, we called it Project Voltron. <laughs> Voltron was like these lions that would kind of come together, li robot lions that would come together to form like a super robot. Uh, and so that's what we did when we merged Engageo and Demandbase together. Um, and so that's what I've been up to for the last year and a half is, is you know, bringing the platforms together and, and taking Demandbase to the next level. Well, you, you definitely led into my, my question that I want to ask you as I listen to you. Um, you know, as I mentioned, curr currently you're the CMO and product officer at 
demand base, right? That's right. So, you know, if I did a quick Google search just out of curiosity, and I found that, you know, if I Google uh, account-based marketing, I'll find that demand base is at the top of almost every list that I find. And you also may see Engageo on that list because the list hasn't been updated. Um, and now Engageo is a part of demand base. So you have these two leaders. Um, so as you mentioned before, they, they form Voltron. So tell me about some of the, how some of these technologies that they both had and what some of the synergies are that made them form Voltron and be even stronger together. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting, good question. I mean, the whole idea of account-based marketing in general is you do very focused marketing on the, the best accounts so that you can stand out. Right. So instead of traditional marketing where you're just going to run a campaign or have a webinar and invite everybody, you know, with, you know, with, with account-based marketing, you're going to focus in on, hey, here's the specific accounts and specific people I want. How am I going to attract and engage them? And so Demandbase, as a pioneer in that category, really started, I would say, almost with like a digital-first approach to that strategy. So Demandbase has, has had you know, technology that would help you uh, identify which accounts you should be focusing on, both because they were in your ideal customer profile and also the ones that were kind of showing what's known as intent, the ones that are kind of hot uh, because they're researching your, your category. That would sort of identify. And then a database would help you attract those accounts by advertising to them. You know, so if you're going to do advertising traditionally, that's very broad, you know, and you just advertise, you know. Uh, but with, with a tool like Demandbase, you can say, you can say, I only want my ads to show to this, these specific companies that are in my list. And even, and then even just show it to the specific people in those companies who are the ones who show interest in what I sell. So it's a very focused form of advertising. But then you drive them to your website and then you can engage them by maybe creating a personalized website experience. You know, recognize, oh, this is somebody from Dell on the site, that's one of my companies, let me interact with them differently. And then you can measure if the whole thing's working by, well, did website traffic go up? <laughs> you know, when I started the whole, pro you know, from, from the accounts that I care about. Right. So that was right. the demand base, was that kind of, you know, identify, attract, engage, measure, was a very digital first approach. Uh -huh. Engageo, as I said, I built Engageo to sort of solve the challenges that I'd had doing ABM myself at Marketo. And, and, and for me, we weren't doing any advertising. What we were trying to do is pick the accounts that were not engaging with us, proactively go after them with our sales teams, kind of hand in hand with sales, like SDR calls and sending them packages and so on. Um, and then really wanted to measure, does all of this result in them just in downloading downloading more of my content and interacting more of my campaigns. So Gageo, we built much more of like a marketing automation oriented view of ABM, which was pulled, uh, pulled together all the data you had about the accounts, you know, like who's opening your emails, which contents are they downloading, which webinars are they attending. Use that to score the accounts so you can sort of know who's engaging and who's not engaging, and then alerting the sales teams. Um, 
and, and creating other automated workflows. So like you create like a segment of accounts and then push that uh, into something like outreach or sales loft for that your, mm-hmm. so that your SDRs might follow up. Mm-hmm. So hopefully you can kind of see very, they're both an ABM, but what we were doing yeah. was so different. Um, and then, you know, if you looked at the analyst reports and they, when they describe Engageo, they'd say, Engageo is really cool, but it doesn't have advertising. Mm-hmm. And they'd go to demand base and they demand base is really cool, but it doesn't have that integration with the first party data. You know, and so by coming together, we were each able to get like three years worth of innovation and roadmap done in five months. And that's why it was wow. one of those things where like it's rare you have two companies that are competitors in an industry that actual the products were so different that they came together. Well, I know it's in your rear view now, but it seems like you know, I've, I was a Marketo user for a long time. And some of those elements you mentioned are attempted in Marketo. But, you know, you, you mentioned too that, you know, you have something that does it, but there's parts missing. So I guess the parts missing are what you were looking for. And rather than trying to develop them where you were at, you just developed your own thing. Is that what basically happened? Yeah, I mean, put simply, I mean, Marketo does things like scoring and segmenting, but it's, it's really all about lists of people. In Marketo, list of people, you know, the person score and a list of people, and and what I didn't have was the ability to sort of do similar things, but at the account level. Account, um, and that was, you know, I mean, that's oversimplification, but that's 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 a big part of the the difference. That, that does explain it clearly, though. I mean, that's where we're getting towards account versus people, and that's I think one of the biggest hangups. One of the first steps of understanding ABM is getting past. The typical uh, traditional marketers used to marketing to people. And another thing I want to ask you about too. So a traditional marketer who's used to marketing to people, they're also used to big numbers, big numbers of database. Yeah. So when you're trying to introduce ABM to a marketing team or when you're trying to sell ABM to a company, what kind of pushback do you get in terms of trying to educate them on, stop worrying about the big numbers and worry about the quality of who you're communicating to. Yeah. Where, we, where people really get into trouble is the metrics that they're using to measure their, their marketing. Um, you know, and, and a lot of marketing historically is measured in terms of quantity and not quality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that can go bad, right? I mean, vanity metrics like, ooh, this many people came to my website, or this many people attended my webinar. It's not all that interesting, actually, you know, if it's not the right people. Yeah. So, you know, in, in ABM, in general, yeah, we're, we're encouraging people to focus on quality as much or more than quantity. Um, is it the mean, you know, the right meaningful reactions with the right people at the right companies? And marketers tend to get that in principle. Right. Where, where, where it gets hard is if yeah. it affects their compensation. Mm. Right. You know, because their KPIs are based on those outdated things. Yeah. If you're measured, even if, not, even if you're not paid on it, but if you're measured on the number of MQLs, you're still going to go generate MQLs, you know, marketing <laughs> qualified leads. Um, you know, so it, it's really, it's really, do you, uh, you know, can, as a, can you help convince the rest of your organization to take sort of this more strategic view of metrics that, are, that balance quantity and quality? Well, let me ask you this. So marketers, in my opinion, 
are often not realizing the shifts in where a company's revenue is coming from. And we're so focused, and I'll say we because I'm a marketer myself. We're so focused on, and as you just mentioned, measured by some of the KPIs that are measuring the top of the funnel that we miss the opportunity to market to existing customers. And as a result, these organizations have the notion that these existing customers belong more to sales than they do to marketing. So how can we resolve some of these outdated thoughts on what marketing owns versus, well, what marketing owns and what they should be measured by? Honestly, I think, first off, let me take some responsibility. I mean, I think part of the reason why marketing is that way is because of tools like Marketo and, you know, the things that I used to preach, you know, where, like, we literally, not even on purpose, but there's a bias built into the market automation tools that focuses on new business. Mm. When, when you go into the reports and those tools and... You know, it's sort of the success is opportunity, new business opportunity was created. Um, yeah. and, and so I'm just saying there, there, there is a outdated, a, a, an outdated overemphasis on the net new logo that's been in marketing for a while. And it's partly because of the way the tools worked. I think what needs so, to change, go ahead. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Sorry, but what needs to change then is almost like how marketers think about how they work and how they work with sales. Mm-hmm. Is the, the 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 mental model that sort of used to exist is kind of like a baton handoff. You know, marketing is going to generate a lead and they're going to hand it to a salesperson, you know, who might close it, who then might hand it to a customer success person or something like that. And in this new world, I think it's much more like, you know, a soccer team where you have forwards and fullbacks and mid strikers and people in different positions you know, but they pass the ball back and forth as you go, you know, up and down the field. Um, and so sometimes marketing's got the ball, sometimes sales got the ball. I love that analogy because I've been using that, and I'm not even a big sports person, but I've been using it. I've been saying football or soccer because you may have two two lines or two teams on the team, but it's still the same team. You don't have your offense fighting your defense. It's still the same team. Yeah. And during the game, different people have the ball. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you sort of, you know, when you start to accept that a little bit, um, I think it opens up kind of new ways of thinking kind of what marketing should be doing and owning. And, you know, maybe I'm not going to measure marketing only on how many net new leads, you know, are created, but, you know, are we influencing open opportunities? Right in terms of engaging people at those accounts, but ultimately for the goal of maybe accelerating deals or improving win rates, you know, and it, it, you met in existing customers. Um, I mean, now that so much business is subscription based, not just software as a service, but other industries too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost foolish for marketers not to be thinking about how are they going to kind of get revenue, more revenue from the existing customers because. That's frankly where most of it's going to kind of be coming from. Um, but the metrics has to change. The org structures have to change, you know, it's, you know to, to sort of reflect that new reality. So is this where, and you've spoken of this a lot and written about it, is this where the account-based experience concept comes in? Um, yeah, definitely as part of it. Um, I mean, so yeah, we've been talking about account-based marketing. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, one of the pioneers of account-based marketing. Um, and there's really two problems with account-based marketing, right? And the first one you just alluded to is the name itself. Mark, you know, has marketing in the title, 
Uh, and it sort of suggests that it's, you know, just something that that one department does. But that's, that's not how we're going to be successful. So one of the, you know, I, I have sort of started to use this term account-based experience or ABX. One of the real advantages of that term is that it's a bigger tent that we can kind of bring these other departments into. The, the other reason I've been using account-based experience is because it has that word experience in it. You know, um, and the best way to describe that is, you know, I, I've used this analogy in the past where traditional demand generations like fishing with a net, you know, you don't care who responds, you just care do you catch enough. Whereas account-based marketing, that's fishing with a spear, where you're going after the big guys kind of proactively. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that, def- you know, and that, that analogy served me well, but the problem with that definition of account-based marketing is ultimately it doesn't feel very good to get poked by a spear. And, and, and the way people are practicing ABM is they're calling and reaching out to these accounts just because they're interested in the account and not whether because that account is interested in them. And what I was trying to figure out is, is there a new model that kind of has the respect for the customer experience that traditional demand generation had, where we scored at people and we only called the leads when they were ready to talk to sales. And can, can mm-hmm. we apply that sort of respect to the um, precision and targeting of the ABM world? You know, no, and, and, and that's sort of why I was like, let's call that account-based experience. I'm glad you have that phrase. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you evangelize that phrase um, <laughs> and give you full credit for it, obviously. But account-based experience, here's the two reasons why I'm going to definitely want to get behind you on that phrase. One, it's because whenever you say the word marketing to a sales team, their ears turn off. They don't like it. So <laughs> account-based marketing, you've already lost half your audience because the word marketing was whispered in the room. And then two, experience. I worked in the customer experience industry for several years as well. And now I'm seeing that there's a growing amount of, and we all know that customer experience, especially since we've been locked down the past year or two, the experience is so much more heightened in, in terms of the value of whether or not you do business with someone. You know, what is your experience? Yeah. I'm an Amazon overuser because the experience is great. Um, so as we bring marketing into the sales cycle, we bring experience to the sales cycle. I think account-based experience definitely pulls it all together and explains how we should move forward as as an organization trying to sell something. Cool. Bye. Bye. You know, my new, you know, I mean, so you mentioned that the intro, I wrote the Clear and Complete Guide to Account-Based Marketing. Um, I've actually come out with a sequel, uh, the Clear and Complete Guide to Account-Based Experience. Um, and Great. so that's, um, it's, I'm pretty proud of it. I think it's my best book yet. Um, so, uh, you know, you can get off the demand-based site or you can throw it into the show notes. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely put a link in the show notes to this as well. So if you're listening, you can find it in the show notes. Um, so you mentioned a moment ago, about the the whole um, fishing with nets versus spears. And you know, the company that I founded, Content Monster, is based on helping companies fish with nets through inbound content. Yeah. But recently, especially with the growth of our podcast services, we see more opportunities to help clients create more targeted outbound content um, towards the accounts that they want to work with. So what are some of the other creative ways that you've seen companies step into ABM? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing, the, the core thing to just keep in mind in ABM, 
right, is, you know, we're going after a smaller set of accounts. And so we need to raise our chances of success with each one. You know, um, and the, it, when true of all marketing, you know, we're not the only person who's trying to reach our target buyer. There's a whole bunch of other people also trying to reach that target buyer. And our buyers have gotten pretty good at kind of opting out and tuning out stuff that they don't want. So that's your rule of thumb for, I think, ABM content. You know, how am I going to stand out in a crowded marketplace uh, so that I can be more effective, increase my chances of success with this smaller, more valuable pool? And you're, you're, you know, don't do that. You know, don't stand out in the crowded marketplace by being louder or noisier, right? Stand out in the crowded marketplace by being more useful, more relevant, more entertaining, more, more something. So does an organization think about that when they're, when they're creating their content? Should they also, you know, from an account-based situation say, these accounts, I wouldn't say maybe this one, maybe so, you tell me, these accounts would prefer this kind of content. Let's go create it and make sure they see it. Is that, is that an approach? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a spectrum, ultimately. Um, and there's a spectrum usually based on the size or value of the account. Mm-hmm. Right? So on the one hand, like imagine you're Accenture and you're, you sell $500 million a year consulting contracts, you know, to like super large major organizations. You're probably going to create content just for that one organization, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's worth it, you yeah. know, and you're probably going to even get more bespoke than that. You're going to be creating content for divisions and specific personas <laughs> that you know, kind of organization. Yeah. You know, what you, so you can, you can see that, you, see, you know, kind of for the larger, most valuable accounts, truly bespoke, customized content. Mm-hmm. We'll take a step back from there. Maybe you're, Doing half a million dollar, 500K deals, or, you know, 300K deals. For that, maybe what you're going to do is you're going to create a micro segment. Let's find like 10 accounts that all have some similar business problem and really create content that's highly targeted to that pool of 10 or 15 accounts. And then for each one of those, once you have that really highly targeted piece of content, you'll probably put their logo on the cover and write a customized first page, right? So each one kind of gets, you know, something custom like that. And then you move down, you know, maybe accounts that are worth $100,000, you know, maybe you'll just have broader, more generic content. But again, you stick their logo and name on the cover. So it's, it's the clear and complete guide to account-based experience for Acme Corp. Here you go. You know, and so again, I think it's, it is about, you know, there's, it's just, there's no one or the other. It's a spectrum based on how valuable the account is and therefore how much resource you can really put against each one. And I'll say as a content producer to the listeners, the, the amount of resource it takes to personalize down to those accounts with technology, that, that resource value is resource cost is lower every day. Um, you know, if I think back to the beginning of my marketing career, personalizing may have mean meant, you know, some big folder with 30, 40 sheets printed up with their, lo- their logo on it and their box and all this, you know, to personalize for one particular account would have meant going back and forth to the printer and all this expense. 
Today, you could do a video or a podcast for less than what all that printing costs for one client. So um, I, I think there's definitely, like you said, there's definitely a range of how much effort you can put into each account or group of accounts. But it's important to know that the, the bar isn't as high as I think many companies think it is mm-hmm. to create that content. I want to build on, you know, once, you know, one of the other themes that I sort of like to talk about here is the, just the importance of what I call human content. Um, and, you know, like a, a, if, if I take the time to record a video for you, mm-hmm. it's going to stand out more. <laughs> You know, than than something that's less generic because there's a there's a human connection, and when marketers are sending emails, you know, if you're sending an email to twenty thousand people, you're going to get a 02 percent response rate. You know, and if you send, you know, take the time to write a personal note to somebody, they're going to get a higher response rate. Absolutely, I I did a, a keynote called B Content, which was basically showing people from from ground level to executives, how much more power there is in them being the content versus something that went through marketing and through a review board and all these different reviews versus just turning on the camera and being the content and speaking directly to your consumer, which is what we can do today because technology allows us to. Yep. Um, which leads me to a question about you personally, man. You, you create a lot of content. You are not camera shy. Um, you do a lot of podcasts, a lot of video. So what would you say to other executives about how it's worked for you and, and why you even do it? So, I mean, for me, it really sits at the core of that's how I believe it's the best way to build B2B brands. You know, I mean, we talk about net fishing and spear fishing and all these other kind of revenue oriented demand generation things. And, 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 I don't think, you know, we, I think modern marketers probably don't talk about brand enough, you know, cause the reality is I don't care how good your webinar is or your content is. If your company's brand isn't good, you're never going to have it be as successful. Whereas if you have a kick-ass brand, you can probably get by with sort of subpar content and programs, you know? And so how do you build a, and, and, and brands matter because people are human and they have emotions and brands are going to kind of, they get kind of past the brain and go down to the reptilian brain. And, and that's where a lot of decisions get made anyways. So how do you build a brand, right? I mean, if you're a consumer company, if you're Coke, you know, you can just have these very aspirational images of, you know, like when you drink this thing, you're going to feel awesome and refreshed and cool. Or whatever. In B2B though, there's this asymmetry where, A good decision makes your company better. A bad decision means you might lose your job. And so a lot of B2B branding tends to be about reducing that fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You know, it's about, is this a safe brand? Is this a trusted brand? You know, is this something that you can kind of bet your career on? You know, and... You know, the classic example of that is nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Yeah. Right? But if you're not IBM, what can you do? And I think one of the best things you can do to be a trusted and safe brand is to be seen as an expert. Um, because people trust experts, you know, to be seen as a teacher. And so I spend so much time investing in content and education and things like that because I believe that's how we can build a brand 
as a trusted advisor to the marketplace. So as a leader in the organizations that you work with, maybe you have more freedom to create content. So how, do you, how does an organization get past that nervousness of, you know, in what level in the organization of people can create content? Just in terms of like people feeling enabled or like, like you're, yeah. you, are, you are allowed to publish things under the company's name? Yeah, how can a company enable, because they have this powerhouse of people who, who may be really passionate about the brand and want to talk about it. It could be their b- best brand ambassadors, but yet they may be fearful of the conservativeness of the company to actually do something or show something. So, you know, are we at a place yet where companies can empower their employees to create content and feel safe about it? Um, I mean, generally, I think they, you know, they should. You know, <laughs> I think every company does, but they, they, you know, I mean, anywhere I'm going to be a leader is certainly going to. And, you know, if, you know, I, I would encourage, you know, every marketing leader out there to, to kind of support that. Um, I maybe think that's the answer. The leader should be. What's that? So maybe that's the answer. Your leaders should be the content. Uh, I think at least, you know, as I was going to say, if, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you work at a company where your leaders don't respect content and you believe that you can help create good content, it may not be the right company for you. <laughs> good point. Good point. So I'll, I want to tell you too, as a side note, I love the demand-based TV section of your website, and I'm absolutely going to use that as an example for my customers of how content should be leveraged. I I love it. So how did that initiative come about, and how's it working out for you so far? Um, It's really the brainchild of my head of content, um, who's a guy named John Lieberman. Um, You you rewind (laughs) enough years back. John was a reporter for the Howard Stern show. So, you know... I thought that na- name sounded familiar for some, some reason. might have heard of him from the Howard Stern show. Yeah. Um, he also was a reporter who, like, went to Iraq and, like, reported on, on that kind of thing. So he, he eventually decided he wanted a career in tech, and he went to SAP, and he spent 10 years at SAP in their, in their content team. But he'd always had a very video-first approach. Um, to content. And so when I took over the CMO at Demandbase, one of the first things I was like, I need to hire a kick-ass head of content. You know, and like I interviewed all the usual suspects and I tend to think about written content first myself more than, than video. But John clearly stood, John Lieberman clearly stood out as like this really interesting powerhouse who had such a strong point of view about video. So like, he's the guy. And he just came in and was like, "We're starting a B two B streaming service, uh, you know, and we're going to produce really seventy five <laughs> videos in three months and launch it." And I'm like, "Great, make it happen!" And he did. So you know, and the funniest thing, the day we launched it, so our site's live at demandbase.com/dbtv. The day we launched it, uh, one of our competitors announced their new streaming service. But more interestingly, Salesforce also announced their Salesforce Plus streaming service uh, mm. coming many months from now or a month or two from now or something. So uh, it does feel like this is a trend and we just happen to have been first on it. And I think a key point of that is hardly any of this stuff is gated, right? We can just go to the site and watch the content, right? 
Oh yeah, yeah. No, none of the content on DBTV is, is gated because, frankly, who people don't want to fill out forms. Yeah, you know, like, yeah like that's the thing. I think um, the companies have had these web pages or websites with all this content. I found one yesterday where I could not watch a single video or white paper or anything else without a form. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, I can't wait to consult with this company because this is this this hurts to even see that this still exists. Yeah. So I mean, so I, you're saying I try to be smart. I mean, like, so like, to, if you want to download the my guide, my book on our site. We ask for an email address, not a whole long form, but we're asking for an email. But then once you give us your email, we're not going to ever ask you for anything else again. You know, and so I think, you know, it is their trade off because sometimes you do want to build your database. Legion, that's that's true. People don't want to fill out these long forms because they just know if they do that, a salesperson is going to start calling them and poking them with the spear. I had a client call me once and said, you know, I gained so much value from this video of yours. I had to call you and give you a shot at this business. And I didn't even know what video he was talking about. Cause I mean, we have hundreds of videos, but he just said he learned everything he needed to know, but he wasn't intending to do it. He just wanted to know about it. And so the video drove the business and had I gated it, he, I'd have probably never heard of the guy. I love it. It's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, I, I love, like I said, I'm going to use your site. Um, D, was it DBTV, DBTV. as, yeah, as, as a poster child for how a company should be a media company and show off their content and educate and guide their customers. I think it's a, a wonderful example. So before we go, John, I want to ask you a question, and I call this my get it off your chest question um, that I think that always brings quite a bit of insight to, to the listeners, especially those who are marketers, marketing and sales. And the question is, if there was one thing that you wish Let's, let's go for marketers this time. If there was one thing you wish marketers knew today that would help them, what would it be? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of at my, my marketing team meeting, uh, it was just last week, I kind of got on the soapbox. And uh, I, what I told, what reminded them is like, team, never forget that even though we're in B2B and it's, we're doing account-based marketing, that your prospects and customers are humans. And, you know, there's so many implications of that. You know, like I was like, I, when, I, when you're writing an email, you know, like so often I look at the emails that people write and I'm like, is that how you would write a letter to like a human? <laughs> like, like a person you actually know or want to know? Like, mm-hmm. no, that's not how humans speak in written communications. You know, so why do you think you have to write in this like stilted way uh, just because you're sending a, an email, you know, for example? You know, or like when we wanted to send packages to our customers. You know, like, yeah, sure, we could send um, like, hey, here's a demand-based branded water bottle. Thank you for being a customer, <laughs> right? But how much more powerful is it to get on the phone you know, and, you know, real, you know, talk to them and realize that they're a cocktail aficionado, you know, and send them a really interesting bottle of bitters. You know, like they'll remember that they'll remember. It just, it doesn't cost anymore. It's just more human, you know? And so there's just so many examples of, of, you know, I don't care what industry you're in, your buyers are humans and treat them accordingly. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, John, again, thank you for taking the time out to have a conversation with me today. Um, really appreciate it. 
Um, you mentioned earlier your your books. So tell us where we can find those and whatever else you want us to know to contact you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the Clear and Complete Guide to Compass Experience. I mean, as I said, I think it's worth reading. It's uh, it's not like a hard read. It's I wrote it to really be uh, flippable almost. You pick it up, read a couple pages, you learn something, put it down and pick it up again another time. You can grab that at demandbase.com slash guide. Uh, and as I said, just an email and don't worry, we won't start calling you. Um, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, you know, demandbase.com slash dbtv uh, is a great place for all these videos. And if you've heard the podcast and want to kind of connect with me directly, shoot me a note on LinkedIn and just mention that you heard, you heard the podcast so I can have some connection. All right. Awesome. And also, thanks for the listeners. If you're listening to the podcast and also want to see John and I, video of the podcast and others will be available in the podcast section of contentmonster.com. Again, John, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Business of Marketing podcast, a show brought to you by contentmonster.com, the producer of B2B digital marketing content. Show notes can be found on contentmonster.com as well as aleejudge.com. To continue the conversation, be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform.